we invite you to stand with me as we prepare to read the word, but I want to pray for us that he would be magnified. You could say, well, how could we make God greater? Magnified, we think we make something bigger. You can't make God any bigger, but today we can see him for who he truly is. Amen? That he's great and that he's faithful. And so, Lord, we just thank you for your word today. We thank you, Lord God, that as we open it, that we can, Lord God, expect to hear you speak. And so we just pray, Lord, in this time together as we turn to your word that, that you would speak to your people, Lord God, that you would challenge us. Lord God, that you'd give us that new perspective that we wouldn't walk out of here the same way we walked in. Romans chapter 11. I'm going to begin reading there in verse 1 if you want to follow along with me. Romans chapter 11, verse 1. Paul writes these words. He says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. May God bless the reading of his word today. You may be seated. We thank this worship team one more time for leading us this morning. <laughs> Praise God. Something about being in the presence of the Lord, worshiping him that gives us the right perspective. Can we get a little more light in the house back there? I want you to be able to see. You've got note sheets on the way in this morning. Our community groups, so many of them are not meeting this week because of uh, of the holidays, but I want to encourage you Wednesday night, we're going to come together for pie and praise. Hopefully you like both of them, but even one, just get here, all right? Um, and so we're going to jump into to Romans chapter 11 today, just a heads up, 35 shopping days until Christmas, just a heads up. We're, we're getting there, all right? Uh, beginning of chapter 11, okay, there is a, a question that's asked by Paul right at the very beginning of this chapter that makes a lot of sense, okay, because in, in chapter 9, Paul had explained how Israel's rejection of the gospel was consistent with God's eternal plan. And then last week, we saw that Paul quotes from the prophet Isaiah 
to say that Israel has always been a disobedient and a contrary people. And, and so in their rejection of the gospel, uh, the God, he's, Paul's saying it's consistent with God's eternal plan and it is in line with their choosing. This does not mean, however, though, that their fate is sealed, Okay. That's the question. Does this mean uh, there's no means of restoration for Israel? And Paul says, by no means, certainly not. And he's going to go ahead in the next few verses of chapter 11 to explain his answer, to give us some evidence this morning uh, of the fact that God has not rejected his people. And so, verse 1, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So that's his first argument, right? He says, if God has rejected his people, then explain me, right? Because I'm an Israelite. Uh, Paul's faith in in Jesus as Messiah proves that there are some Jews who are chosen by God to embrace the gospel. You you know, I just want to encourage you because so often we look for evidence of of God at work and the things around us, but when we're looking for evidence of God's work, we can look here, right? We can look at our own lives and say, well, God's worked here. He's worked in my life. And so here's Paul again. He's a descendant of Abraham. He's a member of the tribe of Benjamin. In Philippians, he tells us just how Jewish he really is, right? And even now, as he writes this letter, he's still a Jew, but he's a Jew who's discovered that Jesus is the Messiah that was predicted by the prophets. Get this, God in his sovereignty chooses this Rabbi Saul to become the great Apostle Paul and to write much of the New Testament. Now listen to what Paul writes in his letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy 1.16. He says, but for that very reason I was shown mercy... So that in me, the worst of sinners, if you want to claim that title, you can't. Paul already took it. He says, I'm the worst of sinners. He says, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. And so Paul starts by giving himself as an example that God has not rejected the Jews. And then he is going to use scripture to show us that God has always had a remnant of Jews who were chosen by grace. Verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. Paul points to the days of Elijah, and this was a time when the nation of Israel had given itself over to idolatry. Uh, Very uh, much it was prevalent, the worship of Baal, and and so Elijah has this encounter. Maybe you've read the story in First Kings, right? He has this encounter on Mount Carmel with the, the prophets of Baal. And after God shows up and wins that battle, um, Elijah has all the prophets of Baal slaughtered. It's a great bedtime story to read with the kids, right? <laughs> They're all put to death. And uh, Jezebel's not very happy because Elijah... Uh, killed her prophets. And so what does she say? I'm going to do the same to you. In other words, I'm coming after you. And so after this great spiritual victory, Elijah's on the run and he's in this place. Again, after a great spiritual victory, he gets to this low spot where he says, woe is me. I'm the only one left and they want to kill me. You ever feel that way? Like, man, I'm the only one out here, right? The prophet Jeremiah shared those same feelings. But what's so significant with Elijah, again, he not only feels alone, but he feels like there are those who want to silence his message and there are those who are seeking to kill him. And the question is, did God forsake Elijah? Did God forsake his people at that time? That's, in essence, what Elijah was wondering. But what is God's reply to him? What was God's reply to Elijah? He said this, I've kept for myself 7,000 men 
who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by what? What's the word? Come on. Chosen by grace. Thank you. Chosen by grace. And so get this. The Apostle Paul is linking what's happening in his time with what was taking place in Elijah's time. And what's the connection? Well, the connection is that at both times there was a remnant. Now, what does that word remnant mean? If you're a seamstress, if you knit and sew, you know what that means. You go to the fabric store. You don't need to make curtains. You just want to make a pillow, right? And so you ask for a remnant. Just give me something that's left over that I, that I can get at a, a cheaper cost, right? You can buy a small piece of fabric that was left over. A remnant is a small remaining quantity of something. So Paul takes the term and he applies it to Israel. In Elijah's time and in Paul's time, there is a remnant. But really, we can't miss the focus. The focus here is not on the remnant, but rather it is on the sovereign grace of God. The focus is on the the sovereign grace of God that is exercised in God choosing and keeping for himself a remnant. Again, God says, I've kept for myself 7,000 men. In the Hebrew, the word in 1 Kings translated that, it literally means I've caused to remain. God says, I've caused 7,000 to remain. And listen, God was not saying I've kept these men from death or I've kept them from Queen Jezebel because that would not be in line with Paul's argument. Remember, he's trying to answer the question of whether Israelites are being saved, whether they're inheriting the promises of God. And God's saying not that he's kept them alive. He's saying I've kept them faithful. I've seen to it that they believe. That's the only way that Paul's argument works. And so he's saying exactly the the same way. There was a remnant in Elijah's day. There's a remnant in my day because just as God sovereignly brought about faithfulness in the time of Elijah, he's bringing about faithfulness in my day. And I believe we could say the same thing today, church. Just as God brought about faithfulness in Paul's day, he's going to bring about faithfulness in our day because he always keeps a remnant. And and it's not this thinking, well, it kind of happened back then, so maybe it can happen now. Like, like there's a good chance. There was a remnant back then, and so it's likely there's a remnant today. No, he's saying this with certainty. God did it back then, and God's doing it now. And the number 7,000, it's significant, right? Because 7,000 is a number of completion. In other words, no one's missing. God is saying to Elijah, I've kept for myself, or I've caused 7,000 to remain faithful. I saw to it that 7,000 believe, and not one of those that I've caused to believe is walking in unbelief. There's this idea here that you have to grasp of divine certitude. Now, that's the connection Paul was making. We, we see it drawn out in the words that he uses there, again, in verse 5. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. God always has those he foreknew. We saw that in verse 2, right? That's the remnant chosen by grace. Remember Romans 8, 28, those who God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And so this remnant that he's talking about, it was chosen by God. They were not chosen because they kept the law. They were not chosen because their hearts were somehow more pure than everyone else. They were chosen by grace. Literally here, it is according to the election of grace. Hear me, when we speak of God's election, it is an election of grace. It's not an election of works, right? Pointing back to the the work of God in Elijah's day, Paul says, God kept 7,000 men for himself in those days, and now in the same way there is a remnant chosen by grace. Paul sees very clearly the sovereign work of God. 
Because if it was God who called them to be faithful, God called this faithful remnant, that means God had chosen them, and he chose them to make them faithful. And the way that he chose them was by grace. And if God has the freedom and the authority to do that in Elijah's day, then he has the same power to do that in Paul's generation. He has the same ability to do that in our generation. Listen, as we look at the community and the world that surrounds us, we have to say God has the same power and authority to keep a remnant in our day. There is a chosen remnant of believing Israel. Therefore, God has not rejected his people. Going on in verse 6. But if it is by grace, if it's by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would not be grace, right? Paul's concerned that, that his readers might not grasp what he said earlier, that they're chosen by grace to the election of grace. And so he kind of hangs out on this idea a little bit longer because he wants to make it clear that the basis of salvation for the remnant has never been works. Understand, you cannot be too bad for God but you can be too good. You cannot be too bad for God because no one is beyond God's ability to reach. However, if you think you've got it all together and you think you're somehow special in and of yourself, then you've missed the whole point of the first part of Romans, right? We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. We all need a Savior. And it's only when you receive the conviction of sin from the Holy Spirit that you begin to seek the Savior. Now, all throughout the book of Romans, Paul has made this contrast, and it's been a contrast between works and faith. He's told us salvation is not by works. Salvation comes by faith alone in Jesus Christ. And and here, though, he's not contrasting works and faith. The contrast here is between works and grace. Again, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. As Paul was contrasting faith and works, he's really looking at two kinds of human activity, right? Right? about how do we approach salvation? How do we, uh, how do we approach God and how do we believe we're saved? Is it by faith or is it by works? Understand, both of those are human activity. But here in chapter 11, it's different because the contrast is between grace or you could say divine activity and works or human activity. And really the point he's trying to make is this, that if election is based on anything we do, it is no longer grace. Like if you and I provide the decisive act in causing our election, it is no longer an election of grace. And hear me, here's why that distinction is so important. Because if we think that God looks down through the halls of time and he waits for us to act, and then based on our action he responds, then we are not chosen by divine grace. In fact, if the basis of God's choosing is because of a decision that we make, then God is not the divine initiator, he is simply responding to us. And if that's the case, then we determine God's action, not the other way around. But hear me, if salvation is based on man's choosing, then how could Paul guarantee that there would be a remnant, right? He couldn't, right? So if God's choosing is based on works, then grace would no longer be grace. If you remember, Paul wrote something similar in chapter 9, verse 11 and 12 in regards to Jacob and Esau when he was talking about God's election. He says this, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of what? Election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call. Literally there it means because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. 
Paul was talking there in chapter 9 about God's divine calling. And the reason God called Jacob before he was born, before he had done anything good or bad, was so that his purpose of election might continue. God's free election would not be free if it was based on what Jacob did. And if you think that God chose Jacob because he was such a good guy, you need to go back and read Jacob's story, right? Hear me, if the remnant that that is spoken of in chapter 11 was chosen on the basis of works, Paul could not say they were chosen by grace. And so really the point here is that grace is free or it's not grace. And, And grace comes because of God's electing initiative, not God's response to our choice. Because if the remnant was based on the choice of mankind, again, how can Paul be sure that God will have a faithful remnant in every generation? And so he goes on to talk about God bringing Israel to himself. How can we be sure that God will do that? I think the only way that we can believe that with certainty is if we understand verse 5, if we understand that God acts according to the election of grace. In other words, God freely, by grace, saves a people of his choosing, and therefore he will always have a remnant. In Elijah's time, it was 7,000 who didn't bow the knee to Baal. And Paul says God has not rejected his people. In essence, no rejection of Israel can stop God from saving a remnant or saving a nation when he chooses to remove hardness from their hearts. Look at verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. Remember, Israel was seeking to please God by obeying all the rules of the law. But because they trusted so much in their works, they failed to see the grace of God that was expressed in Jesus the Messiah. Now, a few saw it. Those are the remnant. A a few repented and received the grace that was offered to them through the sacrifice of Jesus. But what happened to the rest? The rest were hardened. And so Paul really combines two passages here. One is from Isaiah and the other is from Deuteronomy. God spoke to Isaiah regarding Israel's unwillingness to recognize their own hypocrisy. Isaiah 29, 13 says that they basically they they spoke in religious terms, and yet their hearts were so far from God. They, They were like a pot that denied that the potter made them. And so God gave them a spirit of stupor. That that spirit of stupor is really this: it's an attitude of deadness towards spiritual things. If you look honestly at what's going on in the world around us today, I think you can see that same spirit of stupor so many times. You're like, why? What in the world, right? I mean, think about it. Over the last few centuries, man has become so smart that that he's decided he's here as a result of an amazing accident. That's how we got here, right? But but the more we understand the complexity of life, the the more we understand uh, DNA and how complex life is, the more talk there is that some intelligent life form from another planet must have seeded DNA on this planet, right? (laughs) And when they say intelligent life form, they don't mean God, because if they were to acknowledge God, you'd have to submit to him. You'd have to find out what his will is, right? And so you could say that spirit of stupor is really upon everyone who rejects the gospel. Because of their own pride, they won't consider the thing that is most obvious. And yet when you bring up God, they'll call you ignorant, right? And so there is this spirit of stupor. And Paul refers to uh, blind eyes and closed ears, right? This was uh, first spoken by Moses during the renewal of the covenant with God. Moses was reminding Israel of all that God had done for them, how He had miraculously freed them from slavery in Egypt. And so think about it. 
The, the people of Israel in, in Moses' day did not take to heart the miracles that God did through Moses. And, and the people of Israel in Paul's day did not take to heart the miracles that, of Jesus in that time. In fact, in rejecting Jesus, the one who the law was pointing to, they actually rejected God. And then Paul quotes there from Psalm 69. It says, and David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. What's amazing is that Paul was not the first to take this text and apply it to Israel. There are other extra-biblical Jewish writers that did exactly the same thing. And what he's saying is that in the same way that David had pronounced the curse on his enemies, so now there is a curse on those who've rejected their own Messiah. It, it is Christ who is calling down this curse upon those who reject what he has done. Now, what is the table that he refers to? Well, we're all getting ready for Thanksgiving. You're going to set a, a nice table, right? And the table really speaks of fellowship. And so he's speaking of this place, a feast. It was meant to be a place of fellowship with God. It was meant to be a place to commune with God. And instead, it became a place of religious rituals that caused them to think they had no need for God. You see, the Jews of Paul's day were so secure in their idea of being the chosen people that the very idea became the thing that ruined them. And so he says they bend their backs forever. That, that idea, bent backs, it speaks of servitude, right? Understand, ironically, those who reject Jesus' offer of freedom from sin ultimately become servants or slaves of sin. And Paul's saying that the judgment of God on Israel is being repeated as they reject Jesus as their Messiah. This is a very clear division there. If you want to mark it in your Bibles, that takes place there at verse 11, Okay. Because verses 1 through 10, Paul spends a good deal of time talking about Israel's problem. He's talking about their current condition. But now he's going to move on to talk about the hope that lies in their future. Look at verse 11. He says, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? You ever stumble and catch yourself, right? Sometimes you're like, oh, you catch yourself, but then there's other times... You you fall. <laughs> Did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. How many of you are thankful for that today? Salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Understand, when Israel returned from captivity in Babylon, there was this, this new hope that was offered to them, and it ultimately culminated in the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. And now with the rejection of the Messiah, there is still a future hope of salvation. And the question is asked, is the purpose of Israel's rejection of the Messiah so that they might fall? Is that all this is about? And Paul says, by no means. Rather, he sees the reason behind the rejection of Jesus as serving the purpose of the gospel now going to the Gentiles. I mean, think about it. What would have happened, realistically, what would have happened if Israel had accepted Jesus as their Messiah? If Jesus came and he reestablished the throne of David, you have to wonder if they would have continued with a holier-than-thou attitude towards the rest of the world. But that didn't happen. Instead, it's through their fall that they're made jealous of a personal relationship with God. A relationship, hear me, that comes to both Jew and Gentile who've experienced Jesus as their Savior. Verse 12, 
Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? If you remember, Israel had failed to enter the promised land under Moses' leadership. Why? It was because of unbelief, right? That they didn't enter into the promised land. And yet later they entered under Joshua. Yehoshua is how you say Joshua. And Yeshua is a name that we know, Jesus, right? They both mean this, Yah saves or God saves. And so Paul is looking forward to the day that Israel will enter into the rest that is found in Yeshua, Jesus as Messiah, not through the works of the law. Think about it. Yehoshua leads the Jews into the promised land of Israel. Yeshua leads us into the promised land of salvation and eternal life. And so Paul sees this pattern repeated in history. So because of their trespass, because of their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah, salvation has now come to the Gentiles. Don't forget that in many instances, the gospel only went to the Gentiles after the the Jewish people rejected it. And it wasn't the, the Jewish rejection of Jesus as the Messiah that caused Gentiles to be saved. It merely gave them the opportunity for the gospel to come to them. And what Paul is seeing is, man, many Gentiles are taking advantage of that opportunity. But hear me today. That's not the end of the story. It doesn't end there. It doesn't end with us. You see, Paul's desire is that these riches that are now being enjoyed by the Gentiles would provoke the Jews to jealousy. In other words, it would motivate them to receive the blessings that the Gentiles now enjoy. Really, the height of the work of salvation is when the full inclusion of the Jewish people takes place, when all those, both Jew and Gentile, who have been chosen by God enter into the promises of God. Look at verse 13. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order, that somehow, in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Paul knew this. He knew his calling. He knew he was called. He knew he was primarily sent to the Gentiles. And one of the benefits of that is, is that it would arouse jealousy in his fellow Jews. And the more dedicated the Gentile church was to Jesus, the more attention that Jesus received from the Jews. Can I just say that again? The more dedicated the Gentile church was to Jesus, the more attention Jesus received from the Jews. And because of this, some would be saved. While Paul is fulfilling his calling to the Gentiles, understand the longing of his heart is coming to pass as some Jews are, in fact, being saved. Verse 15 For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, we're going to get to this next week. If the root is holy, so are the branches. Paul is looking ahead to the future salvation of the Jewish people. Something that is, is wondrous, yes, but also something that is certain. Why? Because God chose them. Scripture came through Israel. The Messiah came through Israel. Guess what? The apostles, they were Jewish. (laughs) And the question then becomes, what does God have in store for Israel when they find Jesus as their Messiah? Like, if the first fruit is holy, what's the first fruit? Well, it's representative of the first Christians who were Jewish, right? Because if their conversion was holy, and it was, it was good for the church, right? This can certainly be said of the apostles, of uh, the authors of Scripture, right? It was good for the church. 
If the conversion of the first fruit was good for the Gentiles, how much better will it be when the complete harvest is brought in? We're going to continue in chapter 11 next week. We're going to talk about this idea of the Gentiles being grafted in. But as we close today, I think we need to consider how we respond to what we've just read. Like if we live with an understanding that these things are true, I really think there should be some responses in the way that we live our lives. Write these down. Number one, I think we ought to be humbled, first of all. Like when you understand that you're saved by grace, there should be no pride. It ought to humble you. Because you know this, before Christ, you and I, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But by grace alone, we've been brought to a place where we recognize and we, we see the beauty of what Christ has done for us. And can I just say this? When we grab a hold of that type of humility, that type of humility is such a blessing to the church. And so I pray every one of us would come to that place where we know, man, we deserve nothing good, right? If we got what we deserve, we, we'd all get hell. <laughs> we deserve nothing good. But it's by the grace of God in our lives that we've received anything good. And when you understand that, man, every trouble that comes into life, we can receive it without complaining. Every blessing that comes into our life, man, there's such gratitude that we receive that blessing with. We ought to be humbled, church, by the grace that we've received, and we ought to be ready also to share the gospel with anyone. Because if God's grace can take anyone for himself, Paul's a perfect example of that, right? If he can take anyone for himself that he chooses, then we ought to share the gospel with everyone and trust the power of God to work. <laughs> like, how exciting is that? That you can share the gospel with the most unlikely sinner and God can save them by his grace because he's no respecter of persons. If God kept for himself 7,000 in the days of Baal worship, he can keep as many as he chooses in our day. And so hear me, be humbled by the grace of God. Share the grace of God. And I would finally say this, worship the God of grace. As we come up to Thanksgiving week, there's so much that we can be thankful for. I don't know if you do it so often. We do it, go around the table, share one thing you're, you're thankful for, right? I know we could go around this room today, and there's many testimonies of God's goodness and faithfulness. We're going to hear some on Wednesday night. But for all of us, if we've received the grace of God, that's what ought to define our joy. Let grace be grace, church. Let grace be grace. As you wake up each morning this week, remember you've been saved by grace, and thank God for that grace. As you go to work, remember you've been saved by grace. Thank God for that grace. As you come home, I've been saved by grace. God, thank you for that grace in my life. And when you live like that, grace will overflow. Grace will overflow. Praise will overflow. Thanksgiving will overflow. I want to give you one more verse as we close. Would you stand with me? I want to give this verse to you. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 15.10. He says this, by the grace of God, I am what I am. How many of you is that your testimony this morning? It's by the grace of God that I am what I am. But listen to what he says next. And his grace toward me was not in vain. I pray today you'd understand it's only by the grace of God that you are what you are. 
But I want to encourage you, don't let his grace be in vain. Don't let his grace be in vain in your life. And so Paul says, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but it was the grace of God that is with me. As you receive that grace, know that grace is with you. We are humbled by God, God's grace. We don't boast in what we have done. Amen? No, instead, Scripture says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's boast in him. Amen? Why don't you take a moment, eyes closed around this room. I want to, before you get around a table with your family and you share something you're grateful for, I want you to lift just a prayer of gratitude to the Lord. If you know his grace, if you've received his grace, because even right now, begin to thank him for that grace. Maybe you're here today and you've not surrendered your life to the Lord. You're here, you're, you're curious. Well, by God's grace, he's brought you here today to hear this message. And if you think that you need to get your life all together, you've got to fix things up, i got to do this. Listen, we'll never be good enough on our own. And so we need the grace of God. That grace is a free gift that's available to you today. If you would just surrender to it, just say, Jesus, I receive what you've done for me. I receive, I, I believe, Lord Jesus, that you went to the cross, that you bore the penalty for my sin. Lord God, I receive your forgiveness today. You can repent. Scripture says, believe and repent. <laughs> we believe what Jesus has done, and then we allow the Holy Spirit to highlight areas in our lives, and we repent, we, meaning we turn, and we begin to walk God's direction. And so as we close with a song of worship in just a moment, I want you to lift your voice first of all. I want you to take a moment and just thank God for his grace in your life. Maybe it's been through decades. Maybe you're just experiencing it for the first time this morning. But just begin to lift your voice and begin to thank him before we sing a song. You lift your own words to him. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. 